One of the really nice things is that you don't have to know exactly which client is going to want what where. If the front end developers decide like they need three more fields in this particular query, they just add it. As long as those fields are already in the schema because you needed them on some other page, they can decide. They can just add and remove things. You just say, how do we compute any data that we do need? You don't have to worry really at all about which requests need which data. Hey, Jared here. One of the things we can count on in the software industry is change. The state of the art changes so fast, in fact, that keeping up can feel like a whole other job on top of your actual job. That's why we created Changelog Weekly. It's our totally free newsletter that we drop in your inbox each and every Sunday. We link to the latest news, the best articles, and the most interesting projects that you should be aware of. We also add a little commentary from us saying why something's important, pointing you to other instances of a trend, or just making a dorky joke to keep it lively. So if you haven't yet, I recommend subscribing to Changelog Weekly and help us help you keep up with the latest. Head to changelog.com weekly and sign up today. Again, it's totally free and we never spam you. Yuck. One last time, that's changelog.com weekly. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe today at GoTime.fm and follow the show on Twitter. We are at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for delivering Go Time super fast all around the world. Check them out for yourself at Fastly.com. That's all for me. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. Today we're going to be talking about GraphQL and we are joined by two guests. The first is Mark Sandstrom. Mark is an engineer on the platform infrastructure team at Khan Academy. Mark, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Well, thanks for joining us. Our other guest is Ben Kraft. He is the creator of the Gen Client and he also used to work on the platform infrastructure team at Khan Academy. Ben, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Awesome. Hopefully, Ben's internet sticks with us. Um, we've had some issues before we started, so if he cuts out, keep that in mind. All right, so let's go ahead and just jump in. I'm here too, uh, John. Matt, you want me to introduce you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on now. All right, sorry, everybody. <laughs> Treat me like a guest. Like We're a- also joined by our other host, Matt Ryer. Hello. Matt, how are you? Thank you for remembering me. <laughs> I'm, yeah, doing fine, thanks. Very glad to be back. It's been a while, but... It's been a while for me, if you can't tell, based on my <laughs> terrible introduction for you. <laughs> no, it's all right, really. I know sometimes when I'm not the host, I tend to mess around and be silly and stuff. But John, out of respect, well, no, I'm going to obviously carry on. I'll just carry on actually doing that, probably. <laughs> all right. We're going to first start off by just talking about what is GraphQL. So Ben or Mark, do either of you want to take that? Yeah, yeah, I'll take this. So GraphQL is a specification for building APIs. It consists of a a query language for for fetching data and also a spec for implementing GraphQL servers. It can run over any transport, but is usually run over HTTP. Uh, You send a query to the server, usually as a post request. If you squint, a GraphQL query kind of looks like a JSON document without quotes or colons or scalar array values. So pretty much what you're left with is the keys and curly braces. 
and that isn't you know a coincidence that the query uh, document describes the JSON data to be returned by the server. So the structure of the data that you're requesting is specified uh, in a schema that you write. So your schema might have a, a type called user, and the user would have an ID and a name and uh, perhaps friends. And friends could be an array of users. And you know if you follow that through, like those friends could have friends. And a little bit later, we can talk about why that's OK in, in GraphQL. I guess the way I like to think about GraphQL is as a solution to some of the classic difficulties of a REST API. And so say you have an API and you want to get the current user, but different pages want to get different pieces of information about the current user. So one page might just want their ID and name, and the other page wants their friends and their friends of friends and, you know, some whole complicated thing. And GraphQL lets you just define one schema that can cover all of these, and then each page just tells you, says, I want this data, and then the server can send back exactly what it needs instead of having to write a bunch of, either call a bunch of different API calls from each page, and then you get a bunch of round trips, or having to write essentially an API call for each page, and then you have to kind of duplicate a bunch of things. GraphQL says, we're just going to generate this whole, have this whole schema, and then the client says, here's what I want, and the server just sends it back, and it's all in, all in one API call, and it makes things super easy. I know when I first looked at GraphQL, it kind of struck me as something that somebody on the client side would have like dreamed up. Whereas like when you look at a REST API, it looks like somebody on the server side dreamed it up because it literally just tends to mimic exactly what's on the server side. They're like, I'm doing no no data transformation or anything. You can deal with that. Yeah, that's right. It puts a lot more work on the server to say, here's what the client wanted. And now I have to like do all the glue to put it together. But most of that, in when you're actually writing a GraphQL server, most of that's going to be in your GraphQL library. And so you just write, you still just write the application code. Ben, you mentioned REST APIs. I know there are some out there that have been trying to sort of solve this problem. Stripe is one that comes to mind where, I don't know if you're familiar with their API at all, but they have like a way when you're making REST requests that you can like include, like it's, it's I think they call it include. It's like an extra parameter. So it'll actually give you information about nested resources. But then it's it's always been interesting to me that GraphQL is something that just had that baked in from the get-go. And it seems like you can go, like Mark, when you were talking about how you could have a user with friends, and those friends objects are probably going to be user objects of some sort. And you could literally nest that down several layers deep, and it just kind of works in GraphQL, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's right. Considered an anti-pattern in GraphQL to have fields that are just IDs. So... Friends wouldn't return a array of friend IDs. Instead, you can select into that object, uh, and that prevents you from having to to stitch together the data on the client. But yeah, I, I really think of GraphQL as sort of you take that kind of choose which fields you want in a REST API, and you like really supercharge that. You make it the whole thing. You can nest it. You can. That's just the way the whole API is structured, and that's that's GraphQL. You can also tailor fields a little bit more to the client. You have denormalized data, for example, if you want, because it's okay, the client doesn't have to select a field if they don't want. So you can really include additional things that are, are just especially handy for the client to select directly. Yeah, and so you often, I mean, I think at Khan Academy, our user had, you know, like 100 fields because you just kind of, anything anyone needs anywhere, you just put it somewhere useful. And then, you know, most clients are only going to select like five fields. And that's fine. They don't pay for the others. I think that's something that me personally, I wouldn't have thought about at first because I have a lot more experience just making 
you know, JSON RESTful APIs that send that data back. And if your objects aren't too big or there's not too much there, it doesn't make much of a difference. But like you said, if you have a lot of different use cases where the information for a user, you know, you might need a lot, it is nice that you can throw it all there and not worry about the fact that that could be really slow if you had to send everything. So GraphQL, Mark, you mentioned that it's it's kind of looks like JSON mm-hmm. when you're writing these queries, and then the data you get back actually is JSON. That's correct, or is that correct? Yep, that's right. <laughs> okay, so I'm assuming that means that there's both like a server and a client part. So can you elaborate, I guess, a little bit more on that part? Yeah, so a GraphQL client is pretty simple. You package an operation in a JSON payload, and if you can make a HTTP request, you get a JSON response back, and clients, that's the basic, the kind of basic thing that a client needs to do. And client libraries can do, it can provide additional facilities to make certain use cases easier. A server is a lot more complex. Uh, it takes the query that you send it, parses it, and resolves the data. So in the user example, you know, it's resolving ID and name. And each field can be associated with a function on the server, and that function is only called when you ask for that field. So that's what solves the nested friends issue. You can't actually write a GraphQL query that's infinitely deep. So therefore, you wouldn't end up in an infinite loop in your server trying to resolve friends of friends of friends. Fields can also take arguments. And so really, each field is like a function. Some are really simple, and, and some are more complex. Not every field needs to correspond to a function. You can, if you have a user model where a bunch of the fields are available, you can return those all together. And in Go, one of the nice things that each separate resolver function is resolved, like in GQL gen, is resolved in a separate Go routine. So they're resolved in parallel. So you mentioned GQL gen, and Ben had created gen client. Just so people know, I guess, when we get into this, <laughs> GQL Gen is a library that helps generate the server-side stuff, and Gen Client is something for the like the client side, correct? Yeah, that's right. And uh, we've talked about JSON, uh, or mentioned JSON a few times, uh, and so one way to handle JSON in Go, or you know, the, the way that JSON's handled uh, in the JSON package is via struct tags. And so there are some libraries that use struct tags to help you generate queries and interact with the GraphQL server. And then code generation is another popular strategy. Matt, you had said before we started the show that you've written, I believe you said you wrote, was it a client or a server with GraphQL? A client, yeah. So when you were writing that, do you remember what library you were using? I wrote the thing. I wrote the client library. <laughs> okay. I wrote a, a thing, a machine, the machine box GraphQL client library is what I was on about. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So when you were writing it, what, what language were you writing in, Matt? I was writing in Go, uh, and I was consuming a third-party GraphQL service. And at the time, there wasn't a way to do it, but you, you can just do it with, you know, it's normal HTTP, as long as you get the request body that makes sense for the server. And I think you pass the query in as a parameter, but it's, it is like a JSON-esque sort of query language, you just pass that as a string in a post request. In the client library that we wrote, it would just use the normal JSON unmarshalling kind of thing for the response. When you unmarshal it or when you ask for a request, you give it an object or point it to an object like you do with the JSON thing, and it just passes it through to that when it does the unmarshalling of it. So 
quite a simple, it's like a very simple, lightweight library. And it was very quick, to, it was very easy kind of to put together. But that's definitely not the case on the server. And I sort of almost can't really imagine what that looks like on the, on the server code to implement the server-side GraphQL. Yeah. I looked at your client right quick, and it looks like you specify the query as a string when you're making the query. And like you said, you it populates the data. So in that case, you have the query string and the struct, and you have to keep the two in sync with one another. And so there's another client library, the Surecool uh, GraphQL client, that what it does is you use struct tags and it will generate the query from the struct and then populate the data back in the struct. Right. But that can get very complex because it's not as simple as JSON where it's just the field name. Um, you have to start passing arguments and there are things like fragments and interfaces. Well, that is sure cool. Yeah, I guess the way I think about it is the on the client, all of the complexity is like in the query and in the types that you're deserializing it into. And so I think I think Matt's client just kind of lets you deal with that, and it's it's really straightforward. I think Surecool's client kind of tries to hide the query. You just write the types, which, like any kind of hiding things, is often convenient and and then sometimes a little confusing. And then we can later talk about my client, Gen Client, that you write the query and it generates the types. But then on the other side, on the server, the types are actually a lot simpler because you just have your user type and it's got a bunch of fields and a bunch of methods. And then the hard part is the server library itself that like glues all of that stuff together and, and actually has all this logic to say, did the user ask for an ID? Okay, then let's put the ID in. Did the user ask for a name? Let's put the name in. Did the user ask for friends? Okay, which fields of the friends did they ask for? That's where things really get complicated. So GQL Gen, uh, which is the, the server library, is really quite complicated. Yeah, so it's a perfect kind of problem for code gen, I think, that, that particular piece. And you mentioned earlier that there are like functions that basically are called optionally, like if somebody asks for friends of the user, there's a, another function that's going to get called. So that goes some way to explain on the Go side, at least, if you were writing a server in Go, how you could think about that, that there's, there's going to be some kind of getter for the user and another optionally a way to then also load the friends of that user. And I don't know, do, do they tend to resolve down into joins in SQL in a relational database? Or is that just completely up to really the implementation of the server? It's up to whoever yeah, is writing the server and, and what, the, what the database is that you're using. You know, at, at a Khan Academy, we use a document database. So for a lot of things. Um, we do have SQL here and there. So that's interesting then. Uh, yeah, and you need a different strategy mm. because with a SQL database, you can select just the fields you want and document, at least the document database we use, you, you get the entire entity from the data store. Hey there, it's Jared again. Have you heard about ChangeLog++? It's our membership program you can join to directly support our work on GoTime. As a thanks for your support, we hook you up with an ad-free feed, discounts on merch, plus some bonuses like extended episodes. Sign up today at changelog.com slash plus plus. So 
it sounds like using GraphQL on the server side is going to complicate things. So presumably it's solving some sort of problems to like justify all that added, you know, complexity. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit to like what problems it's solving and, and like how it was helpful at Khan Academy? Yeah. So Ben mentioned just, you know, REST APIs versus GraphQL APIs where, you know, in a REST API, you may be making multiple requests and stitching it together on the client. So, you know, I think it really does make make it easier for the client. And we have a couple clients. We have a you know, website and we also have a mobile client. To me, one of the really nice things is that as someone who mostly works on the server, one of the really nice things is that you don't have to know exactly which client is going to want what where. You don't have to like, if the front end developers decide like they want to add three more, they need three more fields in this particular query, they just add it. As long as those fields are already in the schema because you needed them on some other page, like they can decide, they can just add and remove things. And so you don't have to, as a server server engineer, you just say, how do we compute any data that we do need? You don't have to worry really at all about which requests need which data. Though the server library just like figures all that stuff out for you because the client just asks for it. Yes, but haven't you really just moved the problem there though? Like at some point we've got to decide what data we're going to load. And obviously if there's a real separation between client and server, which if you're if you have a public API, you have customers that are not part of your organization. So there's a, that's a significant separation. But if you were building an app and you just chose GraphQL, you know, but no one else is going to use this API, you at some point have to decide what data you're going to load and you may optimize that over time as well. By giving that, basically, you're just empowering really the front end or the client really in this case. Isn't it akin to giving them, like, just to let them run some SQL? Why don't we just let them run SQL? In some ways it is. But I think the nice thing about GraphQL over SQL is it's a much simpler language. If you wanted to try to, like, implement a whole SQL server that includes, like, your business logic, because, like, if you build a really simple app, it may look like you're kind of just making requests to the database and maybe throw some auth on it or something. But in a complicated app, like, you know, it all it all gets more complicated and you have a bunch of business logic sitting in between. And I'm not going to say you can't put that in a SQL server because there are certainly people out there doing it. And I think it's, it's a cool idea, but it's a lot harder. Whereas GraphQL is really designed so that, again, it's just calling these functions on your server. And so if you have a function that knows how to get users friends, that's really all you need to implement that field. And so GraphQL is really, it's, the server library is very complicated, but I think writing a server as an application developer, it's not that much harder than REST. You're, you're really just sort of writing the same functions and the entry points are just a little different. It's the entry point is the field instead of the entry point being like the whole API call. Yeah. And for that, you get a lot of flexibility and that flexibility, the client does still, you know, on the other side, it is still tricky for the client in some cases to decide what information do I actually need? Because you have, you may have some like huge React app and you need to know which of your components like way down the stack, what they're going to need. That is still a problem, but at least, at least you get it, you know, you get the decision like closer. So it's at least written in the same language, say, mm -hmm. then you can use a lot more of your tooling to uh, look into that. I'm glad you mentioned that there's better ways to do it than just doing it in SQL, because of course this is go time, not stored procedure time. That's a separate podcast coming soon, starring John <laughs> Calhoun. John, you're going to do a oh boy. all about SQL and stored procedures podcast. Is that right? Or have I just made that up? 
I hope nobody signed me up for it without letting me know. <laughs> oh, you're nearly going to do it. Some of these problems are interesting to me because it seems like people are approaching them from different angles. One of the more recent React frameworks was Remix, and I believe they're trying to solve some of those similar problems of not knowing what data you need sort of further down in your React application. I don't know if either of you have used it at all, but essentially, if I recall correctly, it's supposed to be something where like if your entire page has like a small section that's like a, a panel or widget or something that needs to load some data, it tries to make it so that starts loading the data like on its own API request if it needs to without like it being a waterfall where like the first one goes and the second one goes and the third one goes and it's really slow. So like I've seen people approach this problem, like you had said, Ben, where you need to kind of know what data the entire page needs, whereas sometimes they're just like, well, let's just not know what the entire page needs and let each thing load its own data. And there's pros and cons to both, I'm sure, but, you know, just seeing different approaches to similar problems. I think one of the cool things with GraphQL is that in theory, and, and I'm not I'm not enough of a client developer to know how much this works out in practice, but in theory, you can kind of roll that all up statically, where each of your components may need something different, and you just kind of roll that all up to the top statically, and then you can just send it to the server in one go. You don't need to do anything clever to make that efficient. Yeah, it probably comes down to organizational things even. Like, if you've got a little team that are working on something, you don't want them to have a dependency if you can help it. One of the advantages I can see to GraphQL is that it does empower the client. So that means if there is another team that's consuming your API, they are somewhat more free to run ahead at their own speed. You know, there doesn't have to be a conversation even. But then there's trade-offs to that. And one of the things that I was interested in is now anybody can really build any kind of query. Is it possible that they're going to ask for something that's very sort of inefficient and it's going to be quite an expensive thing to figure out. Whereas if obviously if it was a restful service where you were, or if you were building an endpoint dedicated to a specific task, you could really ultra sort of optimize that. Do we lose some performance in the generalization of this? Yeah. So when loading data for a, a single page app, right, you can load the data at the top level and pass it down through the tree, or you could have components own their individual queries and, and load a subset of the data. But to get to your, your question, you can construct queries that are very expensive to resolve. And so we're talking about client and server separation, but as a client developer, even with GraphQL, you, you can't be ignorant of what the server's doing and, and vice versa. As a server, you can't be ignorant of what the client's doing. So with that power that you get also comes great responsibility. So that's essentially your message to them. Right. You can see the, the queries that the client is sending to the server and exactly the data that they want. And so it, it does provide an opportunity mm. to optimize for returning that data as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Because of course, if you, if you even if it's inefficient, like you'd be able to run a report, assuming you're instrumenting this stuff, you'd be able to mm -hmm. find out what where are the inefficiencies and then optimize it after right. without changing the interface. Yeah. And then another consideration is protecting a GraphQL server against denial of service, because if anyone can construct any query, then that can get very expensive. And so one strategy for that is, is calculating the complexity for a query and not allowing queries beyond a certain complexity. Another strategy which we use is we have an entire list of all the queries that clients are allowed to send to our server called the safe list. And if it's not on the safe list, our server will not execute it. Ah, so that's sort of like you've locked that down after. You let the clients that's free right. to build and ask for what they need and then lock it. 
That's right. Yeah, we, we statically gather those across the mobile client, across all of the backend services. And so we have a complete list, which allows us to do other very interesting things uh, since we know exactly what data is being asked for everywhere. We also use GraphQL for communication between our services. Do you really? So not just client-client, but service-service, yeah. Is that to have the self-similarity and the familiarity and all the dog-fooding benefits of or? Is it because you then also get to only select the data that you need? Like, do you use those features of GraphQL too? Yeah, yeah, no, it's both. And we use uh, federation to make it so the client doesn't need to know what services, what fields come from. Backend services take advantage of that as well. So the services expose one API, and we do have access controls where we'll lock down a field so that it's just allowed to be used by other services. But then we also have access controls where it's exposed in the public API. So so when you have like a list of these are the accepted queries, how does that work with a public API where like presumably people would think they can kind of generate whatever query they want? Is it sort of just in the docs of like you can't do certain things? I think in that case, you'd want to go with the complexity approach and have some sort of... Uh, perhaps like uh, budget when the user is making requests. And if they go through their complexity budget, you start rejecting their requests. Oh. It'd be interesting to see some of the approaches. You're also rewarding people for keeping the queries simpler if it's a complexity budget. That's actually quite an interesting idea when you think about that. I'd start to wonder if, like you'll see some APIs that have rate limits of like this many requests per minute. Mm -hmm. And if they start to have like complexity limits instead of, you know, you can do as many requests as you want as long as your complexity doesn't reach a certain amount. That could be very weird to convey, but... Yeah, if you're trying to build a, an app that figures out how many degrees of separation between you and Kevin Bacon, this was a meme a few years ago, if you're trying to bring back, mm -hmm. you know, the, then that would be expensive, complex, so, you know, you maybe can't do it, but maybe it's actually not as well. Like, Obviously, there's recursion going on, presumably. So if you have the case of, like, user and friends... And let's assume that the friends return a list of users. I guess that's the example that we're using. So then you can ask for friends of friends. And on the server, presumably, that's just the same method being called twice or the same function being called twice. Is that right? It would be called yeah. more than twice, I assume, because for every friend, I would have to call that function. Oh, I meant, yeah, I meant get friends or the friends function, the one that loads the list of friends. If you then got friends or friends. Yeah. Oh yeah, multiple times, you're right. And exactly what, what you're, how you're fetching the data depends on the structure of your data, right? So if the friend has the ID of the friends, then if you only select friend and ID, that's going to be much less expensive than if you f select the friend name. So it actually has to fetch the friend right. from right. the database to return the name. Mm. I mean, we're talking about uh, the, the server a bit, and we could talk a little bit about the mechanics of, of like what GQL Gen is doing if, if we wanted. I think something that's interesting to mention about GQL Gen is it's a schema-first library. And so you write a GraphQL schema, which is defined in the spec, and you point GQL Gen at that, and from that it generates interfaces which have the various methods that uh, you're expected to implement. So there's a really interesting detail there, which I think we should probably shine a light on. You say it's, there's a schema, mm -hmm. and that schema describes the API. You get pretty good like 
discoverability with that, don't you? Like you do, yeah. There's an interactive web client that can connect to the endpoint and gives you like IntelliSense. You can actually look at the objects, like it's kind of self-documenting. So it does feel very modern in that sense. And that's also great if someone's consuming an API, having that at your fingertips, that sort of where you have autocomplete and features like that, that is going to for sure help. And, and consuming services, actually, I did consume a service that was extremely complicated and essentially was just, I feel like they'd basically dumped their tables through GraphQL. It wasn't, there wasn't much design or nuance to it, frankly. So that did make it quite difficult yeah. to consume. That's definitely something people do and something that in writing a client has, we've seen some interesting use cases come out of folks on who are using our client on GitHub who I'm like, what the heck are, you know, how the heck did you get the schema like that? And it's, oh, they're using one of those um, things that just kind of turns your database into an API, which I think obviously have huge benefits as well. They definitely make it a little less clean. Yeah, exactly. I think you still have to design your API. And so, Mark, you were saying that you take the schema and then you generate interfaces and things, which then makes... Yeah, that, that's what GQL Gen does. So you're expected to implement a the interface type and the, the struct that you create that implements this interface. That's where you can inject all the dependencies into the resolvers. If... The, the resolver functions themselves are methods on this struct. Um, and I also mentioned that when you're at the same level within the query, for the most part, the fields can be resolved in parallel. So they're all being resolved in, in different Go routines. Hmm. I think one thing that's worth pointing out here is that because it is a schema first, like GQL gen is schema first, and because GraphQL has a schema, that means that this is a typed typed query language where you actually know what all the fields are. Whereas like when some people are used to like a JSON API, there's not really like a type structure that's strictly adhered to. And sometimes that can be insanely frustrating. Yeah. Like I remember working with one API where there was like one field on it. And if it had one item to return back, it gave you back a string with like the ID. Yeah. But if there was multiple, it gave you a, an array back. There was something with the request where you could actually request multiple. Yeah. So if you requested using like an array with just one in it, it still just gave you a string back. And it was just one of those things that was like, who designed this? What were you thinking? Well, they're trying to be helpful, aren't they? They're like, they're trying to optimize. It's like, it's really clever. If there's just one, it's a string. If there's many, it's a slice of string. Like that feels like intelligent in some way. I mean, you don't realize that actually, yeah, I'd rather just have it as an array. I built an API once that was just all arrays. There weren't any objects. And, and you know, if there was only one object... It would just have, it would be an array with one object in because then you just could write it once. You could write an implementation that just looped over this data and it worked for one and multiple. So you kind of get that for free. But yeah, I think you do need to still pay attention to your API design. We doubled down on making our GraphQL schema the, the authoritative, authoritative place for our documentation. So Attached to each field, you can put a doc string. Attached to each type, you can put a doc string. And so really in our systems, if you want to understand kind of the broad data model and how things connect together, you go to our composed schema, our, our federated schema, and can read through and, and get a pretty good sense. Mm. We have a linter that enforces that, <laughs> that uh, some doc strings are written and uh, also that they have a consistent format, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
One of the nice things about GraphQL is that it's a fairly opinionated type system. I mean, you can certainly have a type that's like string or list of string, but it's going to encourage you to do the list of string. If you design your GraphQL schema well, that's really where you make that decision and where you say, okay, this might be a list, so let's make it a list. Mm -hmm. All right. So when it comes to actually working with GraphQL, and this is a GoTime podcast, so were there any challenges that you guys experienced that felt like specific to Go or, or maybe specific to a typed language versus like using JavaScript or something else when using it? Yeah, so I can talk a lot about this. So please, you know, cut me off. But I think the first challenge we had, which will contextualize the client that we wrote, is that, you know, the great thing about GraphQL is it's a typed language. And the great thing about Go is that it's a typed language. But you got to make sure those types match. If you make a request and the server thinks it's one thing, or the, the GraphQL schema says it's one thing, but the client thinks it's another thing, that's no good. And initially, this was a challenge for us because we would have people like write queries. And if you don't manage to unit test it quite right, you put it into production and it's just like, sorry, that's the wrong type. And it's like, we're using a typed language. We should be able to do better. And so the client that, that we wrote, Gen Client, it uses your queries and it uses the schema and it generates the correct types for you. So if you make a query that's incorrect, you can do that, but at compile time, it's going to say, sorry, we checked it against the schema. There's no field called name. It's maybe you meant name. And it's going to generate the right Go types for you. So you can't, if you thought name for some reason was, a, was an integer, it's going to just give you a string and it's going to give you a Go type with a string in it. And so that's something that I think Go is really powerful, especially using Go and using CodeGen and using a really type, well-typed language. You get the typing all the way, if you're using a library like GQL Gen, where you've got good typing on the server, and you're using a library, library like Gen Client, where you've got good typing on the client, your types are checked all the way through from the client to the server, if you do everything right. And I think that's really powerful. So, the, and they both share the same schema, right? The source of the code gen is the same data. So, see, because there's another advantage to this. It's not just, I mean, it is what you've said, really, but as a sort of iteration development engineering process, like yes. that having that confidence of being able to, first of all, have discussions in an API schema is very powerful when you're, you know, front-end engineers often have a very different kind of uh, perspective to back-end engineers that can happen. But this is a common place that you are, you know, speaking the same language, really. And you can kind of collaborate much better there. But then not only that, when you once you then generate all the types, you're faced with, like, errors sometimes. And you have to fix them and broken tests and things. And it's like, it sounds bad, but actually that is exactly what you want. What's happening is the compiler sometimes is just pointing exactly to all the places where need, that need your attention now. And that is an asset to have. Yeah, and it really helps when you're when you're evolving your API. If you want to add a field, that's pretty safe. But if you want to remove a field or change the type of a field, you have to check that nobody's using it in a way that's going to break. And that's the kind of thing that if you have a typed server, you have a typed client, you just change your schema and you see where you get compiler errors all the way across the stack. And ideally, you know, that tells you everything everything you're going to need to fix. Yeah, especially if you're using TypeScript in the front end as well. So that you, you literally have right. types there too. I mean, yeah, really. Yeah, and a lot of the inspiration for Gen Client came from what clients that already exist in, in TypeScript that'll similarly generate your TypeScript types from your schema and then just use them. It's good, isn't it? I'm, not, I'm usually not a fickle man. 
this episode has completely convinced me to now use GraphQL on the server. <laughs> to be honest, I, I think I never comprehended. I thought it was built writing SQL and writing join queries and things like this in the back end. I think that gets confusing because... You can do that, but... Like, you see all these services out there that are like, this is a database with GraphQL built in, or we'll turn your Postgres database into a GraphQL client mm. or server. Like, it is kind of confusing at times because you're not really sure what it's doing or how that's working or whether that's what you'd want, which makes it a little bit challenging. Yeah, that can't be great. That sort of general approach can't be great. Maybe on small projects or, frankly... Any small project, you can get away with a lot. Like, it's a great tip. If you want to write really robust software, don't make it popular. Just don't have that many users. <laughs> if you can. I'm very good at that. It's actually where I shine. And actually, like, the whole idea of GraphQL where you can ask only for the fields you need, in some cases, that is just negligible, the difference that that really makes in, in reality. So it's very interesting to hear about the other benefits and things that would apply even in smaller projects. Like you said, the fields, like knowing that you don't have to request them all, I've definitely built some smaller APIs where sending the entire resource back just doesn't matter in the, in the end of the day. So mm. it's like, that's not a real benefit for me. So it, it really just becomes a, you know, trying to figure out what makes the most sense. Even with that, I think the big benefit is really it's not that you can skip requesting name, like whatever, it's, you know, an extra 10 bytes or whatever. It's that you can provide those linkages to friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends, and you can decide exactly how far down you, that you want to go. I think the relationships, and that's that's why it's called GraphQL, is like your users may be a graph. You can think of the schema actually as a graph, and you can decide exactly how far down that graph you want to traverse. And that's really where it's like, you definitely don't want to include friends of friends of friends in every API request. Like that would really explode. But you can get away with including it in your schema because the client decides, okay, I don't actually, I really just needed the friends. Practical AI is a weekly podcast that's making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. If the world of AI affects your daily life, this show is for you. From the practitioner wanting to keep up with the latest tools and trends. Spacey is really a library that lets you put together a whole NLP pipeline of the different things you might want to do um, and extract from your text. You know, you're not just interested in predicting one thing. You might want to read in your text. You want to find the individual sentences. You want to find out which concepts are mentioned in the text, like which person names, organizations, dates. And then you also maybe want to predict something about like what's in the text. To the AI curious, trying to understand the concepts at play and their implications on our lives. Would you rather be spending your time improving your blue score by 0.1 on French to English? Or would you rather have a breakthrough on kind of that under-resourced language that, by the way, has 350 million people using it in underprivileged areas around the world? Here's your expert hosts. My name is Chris Benson. I am a principal AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. And with me, as always, is Daniel Whitenack, a data scientist with SIL International. Hey, how's it going today, Daniel? Please listen to a recent episode and subscribe today. We'd love to have you as a listener. So 
I guess I'm kind of curious on both of your opinions since you've built some stuff with this. Typically when I'm helping somebody learn to, to build an API or do something like that, my general advice is to start with just a simple REST JSON API that returns some data, mostly because if you only have one client and that's like you're writing that one client and you know exactly what data it needs, you can kind of tailor it around that. Now, granted, at some point it might get so complex that it you need something else, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm kind of sort of an advocate of keeping it as simple as possible, especially when you're learning, because you can't learn 17 things at the same time. It's just not possible. And GraphQL, from what I've seen, at least, is not that it's overly complex, but it's also not like pick it up in 30 seconds and, and move on with it. It's going to take a little bit of learning. So I guess what is your advice on sort of when to get started with it? And then can you share a little bit about like you know, how you guys got started, resources, that sort of thing? I would say get started when you f- start to find REST frustrating. When you find it's like, uh, I now I have to go change all these six different APIs because I wanted to change one page, or now I have to figure out who's using that API because I wanted to make a change to it and it's used by 16 different pages and who knows what they're doing with it. When you start to see those problems, that's when it's like, okay, GraphQL is, is going to help you. If you're not seeing those problems yet, if you're in a small enough project that you can just build your REST API and build your client and keep it all in your head at once and update everything you need to, then that's fine. I think GraphQL is going to be unnecessary complexity for you. But it's really when you see those problems with REST. And that's really what we did at Khan Academy quite a few years ago now, is we we did have this huge REST API and we did have things with 50 different fields. And it was a huge pain to, to go look through, okay, how do I, I want to remove this field because it's expensive. And only a few of the clients need it, but which ones is it? And that's really when we started to pick up GraphQL and when it really helped us a lot. Yeah. And I was going to say, we also have some tooling or had some tooling for typing REST responses. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you find yourself building out that kind of tooling, perhaps uh, using something that's going to, you know, assist you, has that already built in is a good option. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like earlier, I mentioned like the Stripe API, and I, if I understand correctly, they have a ton of tooling sort of built around like what they do. But at the same time, I think some of these companies had to invent stuff back when like GraphQL didn't exist. So it's like, mm-hmm. how do we make this work knowing that's not an option? Would you use GraphQL if you didn't have relational data in any way? You'd still would use it now? Yeah. Cool. Simple as that. <laughs> that's that's all the answer you get, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Just yes. No, fair play. No, it's just a... Boolean answer, I like it. Maybe you could answer with an, in a string now, since we're talking about types. <laughs> I don't know. I think mostly, like, most data is somehow relational. Like, there are relationships between your data. If there's not, like, what are you, what is the data even? <laughs> there are certainly exceptions, <laughs> but I think if you genuinely have, like, just, like, your entire data is, like, one big table, maybe you don't need GraphQL. But I think almost everybody has some kind of relations, and you'll find value in GraphQL with those. I guess one question I have related to that is if you're releasing a public API, like GitHub is an example of one that's a GraphQL API, do you feel that releasing it as a GraphQL API makes it harder to get adoption in the sense that like people are kind of, there's a certain subset of developers who know how a REST API works and they're kind of comfortable with that. Then you throw something new in the mix and they're just like, I'm not going to use that API because it is that new thing. Yeah, I suppose there is also a bit a bit more cognitive effort to actually deciding what data you need and discovering that, whereas it's much easier to just say, get this thing. But in reality, like, what difference does that really make? Yeah, I mean, I think there's 
there's a risk of that for anything. You know, I think GraphQL is easiest to use when you're working with it, you know, when you're you're working with the people who are writing a client. There are certainly public GraphQL APIs, but I think when you are kind of both sides, that's where it's really the easiest to adopt. Yeah, and I think writing GraphQL query is pretty intuitive. And so, you know, Matt, you you mentioned tooling where you can write a query, select a field, and actually that tooling will pop up. This is the type, and here are all the other fields that it has and the documentation for those fields. So it does help with discoverability quite a bit as well. And I think that that's a great place to start learning GraphQL is uh, just try writing some queries. You know, it's a pretty easy entry into it. And graphql.org, a really good overview of just if you want to learn just more high level how GraphQL works as a spec, graphql.org slash learn. You can run through those pages and get a pretty good high level overview. All right. We're getting sort of near the end of the episode. So is there anything else you guys would like to talk about before we move on to unpopular opinions? Related to GraphQL, please. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I think this is pretty good. Uh, we, we had on the list to mention Federation. I mean, something I, I can mention you know, right quick around that is uh, you had asked what advantage GraphQL was giving us at Khan Academy. And we moved from a, a monolith written in Python to Go services and Federation was was key in, in being able to do that safely and, and effectively. What do you mean by Federation in this case? Yeah, so this is where different services own different fields and you send your query to a gateway instead of a single backend service. It will figure out which services to contact, to connect to, to get that data and stitch together and return it. So we treated Python as just any other service. And then when we started building out uh, the Go services, we built some tooling that uh, would send requests to both Python and Go. It would compare them. It would send the old requests to the client. It would tell us if there are any differences. Mm, so That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It worked really well. The Federation is one of those things that I've looked at because it looks cool, but I've never had a project I've been working on that's like at the scale where this makes sense. So... It hasn't been something I've actually dove into. So it's it's interesting to see that that worked for you guys, like for you know your particular use case of migrating. All right, let's move on to the unpopular opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. All right, Mark and Ben. Do you have any unpopular opinions you would like to share with us? Sure. Yeah. So my unpopular opinion. So I think manually grinding through work is a underrated engineering strategy. Computers are great at automating tasks that you know how to do. And you have to know how to do something really well manually, I think, before you can effectively automate it. So you see this in product development where startups will just have staff members uh, doing tasks <laughs> instead of their API, you know, automatically doing things, uh, you know, as they're building things out. But it also applies, I think, you know, to other areas of engineering where, you know, it could be that, you know, perhaps a task isn't even worth automating. Or I, I really like the approach of kind of assisted automation where you let the computer do what it's really good at doing at perhaps finding places in code to update, but then you just go ahead and use your... Ability as a person to actually make the updates. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one because it didn't come intuitively to me. That's something I had to learn over years of getting it wrong, basically. I definitely have an instinct to jump too soon into automating things because the process of solving that problem is quite nice and rewarding anyway, especially if you're, you know, because we're kind of programmers, aren't we? We're like problem solving and things. But you're so right. And the point you made about you should be able to like manually do it first enough to know it inside out before you automate applies to lots of things, I think, too, and has so many benefits. I think the learning of it, the knowledge you get from that. I feel like you're going to have a hard time for that one being unpopular. I feel like you're going to have a lot of people agreeing with you. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Especially (laughs) developers, because I feel like developers make that mistake a lot of like wanting to automate things. Yeah, it's really the... The manual grind, like sometimes I'll need to make updates across all of our services and there's literally 200 things to update and figuring out how to do that in an efficient way. Automation is not always the answer. Some aspect of, you know, automating some aspect of it usually is part of the solution, but not, you know, working on a tool to do that. Yeah. Just specific thing that you'll only be doing once. Mm -hmm. So I make video courses that like teach programming stuff. And at first it was really tempting to build my own sort of admin page that I'd upload a video and it would, you know, do all these things for me, like create a thumbnail, change all the stuff and do it all. And I kind of fought the urge to do that because that was like, I'd have to interact with a couple APIs and do some other things. And what I found was that in reality, going to the website that I host the videos on and just bulk uploading, you know, 50 videos by dragging and dropping with my mouse and then running FFmpeg on my own computer to generate thumbnails and just basically naming them 01, 02, 03 and just uploading those ended up taking a little bit of time, but it was way less time than it would have cost me to like actually go develop all this stuff that I really <laughs> didn't need because it wasn't like I had a platform that people were all hosting stuff on. Mm. Right. Now, it's completely different if you host a platform, but I, you know, when it's just you doing something, it's like, is this really worth it? And it's really hard to say no yeah. because that sounds so much fun. You're like, oh man, I'm going to get to use this API. It's going to be fun. It's such a good example that is, John, because that is, even now, I'm thinking, definitely automate that one. <laughs> even just that description of it in the in the story where you're saying you learned this lesson, even then, I'm still like, yeah, that would be great. That would be <laughs> such a, that's prime for automation, that. But Mark, would you resist that urge? Yes. Yeah. Boolean answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, Ben, while you're here, do you have an unpopular opinion? This may also not be that unpopular, but I think that Go really needs union types. Disjo- like proper disjoint union. I think generics are just like making this really obvious. I think it's especially obvious because they kind of halfway added a union types in, except they only exist in type parameters and it's kind of more of an untagged union. I think enums are a case of this. I think people using pointers as nullable. When you don't need a pointer, you just need something that's nullable. I think there there are so many cases where it's just like, we really could just use union types. And I know they want to take the time to add it right, which I, I support. You want them. But I think it's really getting getting to be time. For anyone that doesn't know, what is a union type, Ben? So a union type is when you have something like, it could be an int or it could be a string. And I think there are a lot of sort of distinctions of there are slightly different ways you can think about unions. But that's the basic idea. Is it something, it could be an int or it could be a string. It doesn't necessarily have to satisfy any interface. It's just, it's one of that list. I was going to say, 
if your unpopular opinion was that your ISP you have is very good. <laughs> yeah, well, no, my unpopular opinion is I might need to switch to the terrible ISP whose uh, service everyone hates. But I feel like there's lots of potential ISPs for that. <laughs> I love mine. I'm one of those. I have a gigabit fiber symmetrical. It's life changing. Magical. Yeah. Sadly, we could not get that at this apartment. Mm. It's worth like running your own fiber around the streets if you can, Ben. I wish. <laughs> yeah. No one would move it for a while, I think. If you knew someone nearby that had fiber, just for the well, just while you do the podcast, just get a really long Sorry, I have to stop stop yeah. with this now. Can I tell you a story about this, Matt? Yeah. Very related. So, when we my wife and I were building our house, I lived mm. with my parents and their internet was terrible. And I later found out it was because their one DSL line runs underground and apparently there's like water getting in. So when it rained, it would just be like a really bad connection. So apparently it's something, I don't know the exacts, but it was something with like the union with it and everything. It's hard to get them to prioritize this job and they can't send anybody else out to do it. So they're just, it was kind of limited on options. And somehow at one point they got somebody to come out to run a new line, but they like, it went into a neighbor farmer's field. Hmm. So it's like just sort of dangling from a pole there and then it like ran through his field, but like their internet was like twice as fast. So it was like great for a while. And then one day the farmer came through to actually chop or to actually plow his field or something or whatever he was doing with cutting stuff. And he didn't know that line was there. So all of a sudden the internet just went out. And then when they came to check it, basically what had happened was he had went over the line and just sliced the crap out of it. And they had to go back to the old line at that point. And they like never sent anybody else out to fix anything or do anything with my parents' internet. Oh, that's a nightmare. It just shocked me because I'm like, who thought this was a good idea to just run a line <laughs> through some farmer's field and not tell anybody? Yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah, I love that story. That's going to be me and me and running my fiber, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to work great until somebody runs over. Just avoid the farmer's fields. <laughs> You'd just be in the streets, I think, though. Like, that'd be good. Yeah, that'd work. I have decent internet at my place, but if you get outside of like the small town that I'm in, where there's a bunch of farms and fields and stuff like that, when I was growing up, it was awful options everywhere. Like satellite internet was sort of an option, but like you always had like these bandwidth caps that were so low that it was really hard to use and everything else. And it's like slowly gotten better. Whereas like now they have something where they like have a big tower. And if you're like within direct line of sight, or if you can get like a receiver within line of sight of it, it's not terrible, but otherwise you're just kind of out of luck. It sounds it sounds like you live in a dystopia, like a Netflix special where where well, you describe this it's unusual village with really modern internet surrounded by, you know what I mean? I feel like this, we could sell this to Netflix. I think the only reason the internet is like modern in this small town hmm. is because there's so few people that they like have cable, like Comcast has cable set up and there's just not enough people for it to actually be slow. No one's using it. So it's so fast. Yeah, pretty much. It's just ADSL. <laughs> I have an uncle who worked at Comcast, like not like directly, he like worked on the lines and stuff, but he used huh. to joke that whenever I moved back to this town, that the internet got half as fast Yeah, because I'm like one of the high heaviest users. <laughs> That's what he would claim. Like he was just joking, but yeah, it's interesting different places. I knew your uncle was joking. <laughs> I think I'd like him. Maybe. Can I have his number? <laughs> That'd be weird, wouldn't it? I don't know. I mean, it'd be more weird for him, I think, if you just called him. Yeah. He's like, what is this long distance call? <laughs> About, are you John Calhoun's uncle? Yeah, it's me, Matt. <laughs> yeah, what would he do? Should we do it now? <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> oh, okay, well, we need to do a next week. We'll get ready. 
we'll do a new regular section phoning someone's uncle and we'll just phone up an uncle and see what's going on uncles usually have the most interesting views and some very unpopular opinions (laughs) i was gonna say based on where i live i have no idea what type of unpopular opinions i might get from uncles so that could be scary in your dystopian netflix village pretty much all right mark ben thank you for joining us matt thank you for hosting with me pleasure sorry for the uh poor intro it's all right we'll get it right sometime yeah it's better like this yeah thanks for having us yeah thank you so much yeah thanks for having us that is go time for this week immutable databases your thoughts let us know in the comments there's a direct link to the discussion thread at the top of your show notes Everyone on this episode will be notified of what you have to say, so it's a great place for follow-ups, clarifications, links to related projects, stuff like that. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Don't forget to subscribe at gotime.fm. We are also in your favorite podcast app. Just search for GoTime. If this is your 10th listen, your 100th, your 1,000th, whatever order of magnitude you have with us, we'd love a review and recommendation. Special thanks to Fastly for CDNing for us all these years, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the fresh beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next week, Matt and John are joined by Ed Welch to discuss logging, logging, and more logging. Yeah, a lot of logging going on there. That's one to look forward to next time on GoTime.